Uh, if you're new with us here at Fairlawn, one of the things that we value uh, highly is taking a book of the Bible and starting at the beginning and just preaching all the way through the book uh, so that we can unfold uh, the full counsel of God and what he has spoken. And so as I said, today we'll be opening up a new series in the book of 1 Peter. If you'd like to open your Bibles there with me, uh, we'll be looking at verses 1 and 2 of uh, 1 Peter 1. What we're really seeking to accomplish this morning is to do a bit of introductory work. Who was Peter? Uh, Why is he writing this letter? Um, What is the situation of the readers, uh, the the people that he's writing to? Um, And then lastly, we'll see kind of Peter's theological foundation that he kind of uh, roots his readers in that is going to carry us through the rest of our study and the rest of the book. And what I wanted to do was to start out by asking you two questions that I want you to be thinking about from here on out in this study that are really going to kind of frame our study in the book of 1 Peter. And uh, they are these. What does it mean to be a Christian in this world? What does it mean to be a Christian in this world? What does it look like to live in a world that is following false gods when you have sworn your allegiance to the one true God. Now, if you're thinking critically with me about those two questions, you'll really see that they are one and the same. What does it mean? What does it look like to be a Christian in a world that is hostile to the God that you serve and hostile towards you because you serve that God? We have all heard the popular Christian slogan that Christians are in the world, but not of the world. And that slogan is taken from Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. And in that portion of scripture, he says this, I have given them, that is Jesus' followers, I have given them your word, the Father's word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Here Jesus says that one of the chief marks of being a Christian, that is somebody who is living in the world, but is not of the world, is that you will be hated by the world because you follow him. And this indeed is the reason why Peter wrote his first epistle or his first letter. It was to encourage Christians who were suffering under the hatred of the world and to teach them how to live in a world that they are in but not of. And Peter understands as we open up the two, uh, two verses, as we begin to do that, he understands that the foundation that these people need, a people who are living in a world that they are not of, he understands that they need to know who they are in Christ. They need to know what their identity is. And this will become more clear as we go throughout And so if you'll take out your bulletin insert, you'll see here that the aim of the message this morning is to understand the situation and the identity of God's people, both the people that Peter was writing to in the first century and consequently us as well. 
We're going to talk a little bit about Peter and who he was and why he's writing, as I said before, and then we'll focus on the situation God's people find themselves in and then where their identity is rooted. And essentially what Peter is doing here is, as I said, he's laying this identity marker for God's people at the front of his letter to give them something to stand on in this world where they are strangers and exiles. So allow me to read the text, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and then I'll pray and we'll get going. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Father, thank you for your word and how it reveals your glory. I pray that your spirit would be with us here in this place, removing a heart of stone and putting within us a heart that is moldable before you to accept what your word has spoken, to submit to it, and to live in light of it. Grant this now by the power of your spirit. I pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we must begin then where, where Peter begins. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So who was Peter and why is he writing this letter? Well, Peter was an apostle of Jesus. Uh, he, he received that title after Jesus had ascended, being a, an apostle is one who heralds uh, the truth of Jesus. Uh, but, but more so than that, he was also a disciple who walked with Jesus in his earthly ministry. He was one of the 12 uh, disciples that Jesus handpicked. Back in Matthew chapter 4, we see Jesus walking along the, uh, the ocean sea there on the beach, and he sees some fishermen out casting their net and, and fishing. Uh, we'll know that one of them's name was Simon, who would later Jesus would rename to be Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were out fishing, and Jesus walks by, and he calls to them, and he says, cast down your nets and follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And it's at that moment that Simon Peter and his brother Andrew drop their nets and begin to follow Jesus and become one, two of his 12 uh, disciples. But Peter wasn't just one of the 12. Peter was one of the inner circle of disciples that Jesus had. So within the 12, he was extremely closely connected to three, uh, Peter James and James, not the half-brother of Jesus, James, but uh, the brother of John. And so it was Peter, James, and John who were in this close-knit circle to Jesus who he poured intentional time into and who knew him and had a connection with him unlike that of the other disciples. We see also that Peter says uh, in uh, 1 Peter 5, 1, that he was a witness to the sufferings of Christ. That he was there when he went to trial and when he was crucified. That he was an eyewitness to those happenings. And you see the way that he takes up his pen and writes to us, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, what that should do when we read that is, is help us understand that this epistle was written with the authority of God himself. 
and that Peter is an apostle of Jesus and that the Spirit is working through him to write this letter. So we should understand that it has authority over our lives and be encouraged by that. That's a little bit about who Peter was. Now on to why is he writing this letter? What's the purpose of this letter that he has taken up to write? I think the overall theme can be uh, pretty easily stated as sharing in Christ's sufferings. Uh, This book is all about Christian suffering and how we are to live in a world that hates us for who we follow. How to live in a world that hates Christ, the gospel, and those who follow him. And I am completely positive that Peter was handpicked to write this letter. I'm going to tell you why. It's not because Peter was super excited, gung-ho about suffering for Christ and experiencing that, but rather it's because this is one of the hardest realities that Peter himself had to accept as a follower of Jesus. Firstly, that Jesus' mission here on the earth was to come and suffer and die, and then secondly, that those who follow him should not be surprised when the same thing happens to them. Uh, You'll remember, if you know the Gospels well, that in Matthew 16, uh, Peter lays out this awesome confession about who Jesus is. Jesus asks, asks, uh, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And uh, only three or four verses later, Jesus begins to talk about what his mission as the Son of God here on earth was. Namely, that he was to come and suffer and die and be buried and three days later rise again. And here we have, just just right after this amazing confession of Peter, the subject of suffering comes up. that, uh, That Christ was to come and suffer and die. And what does he do? Uh, He takes Jesus aside, remember, Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, and rebukes him for saying these things. There's this unwillingness in Peter to see Jesus suffer and die. But not only an unwillingness to see Jesus suffer and die, but for him to take part in that suffering as a follower of Jesus. I'm thinking here about uh, John chapter 18 and other places in the gospel where uh, Jesus is taken and he goes to trial, uh, trial um, under Pilate, and then he's taken and crucified. Where was Peter when all that happened? Well, if you'll remember, he was uh, asked three times during the trial and crucifixion if he was a follower of Jesus. Three times he was asked and three times he denied that he was. Somebody who was so closely and intimately connected with this man for three years asked three times if he was a follower, and he said, no, no, I am not. Why? Well, at the time, it wasn't looking too hot for Jesus, right? He was on trial and and going to be crucified. So it seems likely that the reason why he denied being a follower of Jesus in this moment was because he knew that the same would likely happen to him. And so it's not because Peter was all, I love to suffer for Christ. It's amazing, it's great, it's good. It was because this was one of the hardest things that he had to accept about being a follower of Jesus. And are we not the same as Peter? Do we not have the same fear and unwillingness to suffer for Christ running through our veins? 
So much so that we accumulate for ourselves pastors and teachers in this world that teach that suffering is not a part of the Christian walk. Suffering for Christ, if you're suffering, there's something wrong. When the message of 1 Peter directly pushes up against that and contradicts that mindset, not only is suffering for Christ's sake something that will happen to you if you're a follower, but it is something to be rejoiced in. You see, Peter knew all too well his own failing in this way. And as God would have it, he would have to suffer for Christ. We see that in the book of Acts. But he knew what a temptation it was to try and get out of the suffering as being one who actually took those steps to get out of the suffering by denying Jesus. And so he takes up his pen, a changed man, and he writes a letter of encouragement to those who are currently suffering under the hatred of the world for the name of Christ. And so we see this running all the way through the epistle. This is what Peter is writing for. He's encouraging them and he's teaching them how to live in a world where they're strangers, where they are hated. So that is who Peter was, briefly, and why he is writing this letter. And now he turns and expands on the audience to whom he is writing and the situation that they find themselves in. If you're following the outline here, they find themselves as God's exiles. We'll continue reading here and I'll make light of that. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, writing to to God's elect. We'll deal with that in a moment. Strangers, some translations here say exiles or sojourners or pilgrims. That's why you see exiles in the outline. Strangers or exiles in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And so these people were people that he was writing to that were physically exiled, physical strangers in the world, being uh, people who had fled to these various areas of Asia Minor in the first century. I want to give you a little bit of understanding of why they had to flee and what was going on at this time. So likely when Peter is writing, it's, it's around the late 50s or early 60s of the first century. And by this point, we know from the book of Acts that the gospel has spread through the efforts of Peter and Paul and the other apostles. And Peter here calls the Christians that he is writing to exiles or strangers. And this is firstly meant to be understood in the physical manner that they were physically removed from their homes or forced to leave what they knew. And we have to ask ourselves, well, why? And I think that the most likely answer for this is because of the persecution that they were experiencing for being a follower of Jesus during this time. A little bit on what the persecution looked like during this time for the first century Christians. The book of Acts records for us beatings, imprisonments, stoning, executions, and many other things are recorded in the book of Acts that would happen to followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, An outside, uh, a secular source, first century Roman historian Tacitus said this about uh, the persecution during this time under the reign of the Roman emperor Nero. He says, Nero inflicted Uh, the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their so-called abominations, 
called Christians by the populace. He, that is Nero, had them covered with the skins of beasts, and they were torn apart by dogs and perished. Or they were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Just a little bit on that last phrase. Uh, Nero was one of the worst persecutors of the Christian church in all of church history. And this is what he would do. Uh, When daylight would begin to fade, he had this magnificent garden uh, in his home in Rome. And what he would do is he would have these giant cages that that worked as a a type of a lantern. Uh, And what he would do is he would take Christians alive, lock them in this lantern, and light them on fire so that he and others who were with him at his home could walk around the garden at nighttime and see where they were going. This is the type of persecution that the first century Christians were experiencing. Suffering for the sake of Christ. Now it is either because of the specific persecution just mentioned under the rule of Nero, or because of the general persecution we see in the book of Acts, That depends on the dating of when Peter's actually writing. Christians were forced because of this persecution to leave their homes, to flee for the sake of their lives all over northwestern Asia Minor, which are the areas of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So Peter's telling us here, this this is where they are, and this is how they got there. They're strangers and exiles in the world physically speaking. Now it's at this point that I believe that they must have experienced a severe amount of identity loss. Think about this. Everything that you've ever known, living in one area, you become a follower of Christ and then you begin to become persecuted for your faith. Your family are taken from you. Your family are perhaps killed. Your friends, you're forced to leave everything that you've ever known and scatter around uh, the, the, the areas to get away from, to, to save your life. Under the persecution that they were facing, I can only imagine what type of identity loss they must have had. So much of who we are and what identifies us is the home we grew up in, the parents we had, who we were related to, who were our friends, our surroundings, all of this being stripped and taken away from them. I, Abby and I can identify a little bit with what this feels like, and perhaps you can too. Um, a couple years ago, when we decided to move down to Florida so that I could go to college down there, um, we, we left everything. This is where we grew up. This is our hometown. This is, we know people around here. We know the area. We decided that God was calling us to do this. And so we didn't leave because we we're being severely persecuted. Don't get that impression. Um, we left and we took myself, I took myself and my wife and a, a U-Haul trailer, not very big, and one car and moved down there to Florida. And this was the first time that we'd ever really been outside of this area per se, at least on our own. And we, we experienced this identity loss. We didn't have any family down there. We didn't know anyone. It was just me and her. We had no church. We had no familiar surroundings. There was a sense in which we were like, who are we? 
Nobody knew a Jerkovic down there. Most people don't know Jerkovic is up here either because there's so few of us. Uh, it didn't mean anything to them down there. Stallsfus didn't mean anything to them down there. And there was a real sense in which we had to build an identity of our own just as me and her as a family. And this is where our faith really came in strong. And we had to rely upon our faith, placing our identity in Christ. And out of that grew a community, a church. We found a church home. And we began to build relationships there. And I was going to a Bible college at the time, so I was able to establish and build relationships there. Abby found a job. I found a job. We began to become our own family and begin to have an identity of our own apart from anything that we knew. And I think this is what first century Christians were experiencing. Who are we? A sense of identity loss. What is our purpose? How are we to live in this world as strangers and exiles? Now, why is that important for us? Why is that important for us? We're not physically exiled, right? We're not physical strangers in this world. Well, it's important for us because Peter is not only talking about the state of the first century people being physically exiled, he's also talking about the spiritual exile that every Christian, every true believer in God over all time has been in. That is that we are in this world, but we are not of this world. And if this is true, if we are pilgrims and strangers in the world, we have to ask ourselves these same questions. Who are we? What is our purpose? How do we live in this world where we are strangers and exiles? I'm sure some of you have experienced a spiritual identity loss when you came to Christ. Very similar to what a physical identity loss looks like that I described Abby and I went through. You see, this is what Peter's audience had to struggle with, being both physically and spiritually exiled. But his letter here shows us how we, we, ought to live in a world where we are spiritual strangers and exiles. That we are in the world, but we are not of the world. Now, Peter understands the situation of his readers, both then and now. We are all spiritual exiles. And so he begins his letter by reminding us and them of who they are in Christ, of where their identity is rooted. Because when we know that, that's the foundation for living as a Christian. When we know who we are, it tells us what our purpose is. It tells us how we ought to live. And that's what Peter goes on to reveal to us. Simply put, he says that God, he says that we are God's chosen people. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and sprinkled by His blood. Peter begins by saying that, and really what he's talking about here, to God's elect, to those who have been chosen, 
Uh, what he's talking about here is the biblical doctrine of election or God choosing before the foundation of the world who would be his people, who he would save. And he says here, he identifies for us how God went about doing this, choosing the nature of it. He says that we have been chosen first according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And uh, if you're familiar with uh, this doctrine or if you're familiar with Christian doctrine in general, you'll understand that this is a very debated Christian doctrine. And I want to say at the outset, before we talk a little bit about the nature of it and how God's choosing or his election relates to his foreknowledge, that if we are to use scripture as our foundation, which we must, we have nothing else to stand on as Christians, we must acknowledge that there is no room for dialogue on whether election is actually a biblical doctrine or not. That is to say, we must acknowledge that God did indeed choose his people before the foundation of the world. We see that reflected here. We see that reflected in Ephesians 1.4. For he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. We see that reflected in other places in scripture as well. It's all over the Old and New Testament. And so there's no room for dialogue on whether it's actually a biblical doctrine or not. It is. Now, where dialogue is appropriate is in the method God chooses or God uses to choose his people. That is to say, how God chooses his people. I'm going to give you two uh, primary ways that Christians understand how God's election or his choosing relates to according to his foreknowledge, the phrase we see here in Peter. The first way in which Christians understand how God's election relates to his foreknowledge is this, that before the foundation of the world, God knew who would one day choose to believe in him. Uh, That is, he saw that decision. He knew beforehand that they would make that decision. And then God chose them based on the decision that they made that he foresaw they would make. And so he chose them and made them his chosen people based on that decision he foresaw they would make. Now this view understands God's foreknowledge to be something that he uses to make his choice of who will be saved. The second way in which Christians have understood how God's election relates to his foreknowledge is this. That before the foundation of the world, God chose his people not based on anything that he foresaw they would do, but based solely on his good pleasure and purpose. Now this view understands God's foreknowledge to be an action of God in which he places his fatherly love upon the people he will one day save. Now, personally, I am completely convinced that the scriptural testimony supports that of the second view. I understand that not everybody in here is going to agree with me on that. Uh, Nobody in here agrees with me 100%, nor I with anyone in here, nor you with anyone else in the world. But regardless of how God chose his people, though it's important for us to know, regardless of how God chose his people, the point that Peter is making here is that all true Christians have been chosen by God. But not only have we been chosen by God, 
We have been chosen by God the Father. What Peter does when he makes this distinction between the persons of the Trinity that God the Father was the one doing the choosing, he's showing us the personal and intimate relationship that God shares with the people that he has chosen. That of a father choosing his sons and daughters. We have this close-knit relationship with the father. We are his children by choice, by his choosing. We have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Secondly, we have been chosen through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Now in this phrase, I think that Peter is getting at two different things, but they're nearly one and the same. There's two ways that we can understand this sanctifying work of the Spirit, and they're related. The first is this, that uh, Peter is talking about here the Spirit's work in setting us apart as a people, as a holy people, at the time of our conversion. We see this reflected in John chapter 3, where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about how the Spirit uh, makes people born again, right? The Spirit's involvement in our salvation, he sets them apart as a new and holy people in our conversion. But what you're probably more familiar with is what uh, people or pastors call sanctification. That is the continual process of the Spirit's work in our lives to conform us to the image of Christ. And I think that Peter has both in mind here that we have been chosen through the initial sanctifying work of the Spirit to set us apart as a people of God in our conversion, but also that the Spirit is continually working in us to conform us to the image of Christ. So we have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. We have been chosen uh, through the working, sanctifying work of the Spirit. And we have been chosen for obedience to Jesus Christ by the sprinkling of his blood. So we have been chosen for obedience to Jesus Christ. We have been chosen in order to stand on the word of God and to live in accordance with it in a world where we are strangers and exiles. The Father chose us so that we would manifest his glory through living in obedience to him in a world that is hostile to our God. So we've been chosen for obedience to Jesus Christ. And Peter so beautifully comes in at the end here and summarizes it all, saying that it's all because of the blood of Jesus that this has happened. We've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. We've been chosen through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. We've been chosen for obedience to Jesus Christ through all of it by the sprinkling of Christ's blood. We were chosen to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Our entire salvation was accomplished and secured through his sacrifice. We were chosen to be redeemed and forgiven by his blood. Step back for a minute. Imagine what this would have, how this would have come across to these people who were physically spiritually exiled, the sense of identity loss they would have had. And Peter here, in the first two verses 
of his letter. His, in his greeting, we haven't even got to the meat, this is the greeting. It says that you have been chosen by God the Father. You are his child. Imagine what courage and strength and purpose this would have given Peter's audience. Christian, does it give you the same strength and courage and purpose? Because it should. Because you are in this world, but you are not of it. Your identity is rooted in something not of this world. You see, we are not suffering under the physical exile that these first century Christians were yet. Not experiencing that yet. But we are, under the, we are suffering under the spiritual exile that all Christians are in. And we need, just as much as they did, to know where our identity is rooted. To know who we are. To know what our purpose is. To know how we ought to live in a world where we are strangers and exiles and hated for the one that we follow. And Peter here, notice, if you haven't already, employs the entire Godhead and says that that is where our identity is rooted. It is rooted in the Father and His choosing. It is rooted in the sanctifying work of the Spirit and it is rooted in the blood of Jesus spilled for us. So Christian, hear and accept your identity. Who are you, Christian? You are a chosen son or daughter of God the Father. What is your purpose, Christian? You have been chosen through the sanctifying power of the Spirit and are being conformed to the image of Christ, to the glory of God the Father. How are you to live in a world as exiles and strangers, Christian? You are to live in obedience to Christ. That you no longer live for yourself, but for the one who bought you with his very own blood. Christian, accept your identity. Rest in your identity. Live in your identity. I can't think of a better way to end the message this morning than by simply greeting you or sending you out uh, with the same words that Peter does for us. And so I will close with this. Grace and peace be yours in abundance.